Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As inflation ticked up a bit, a new debate about what constitutes high interest rates and when the Federal Reserve will consider reversing course and start cutting them. Even with Congress out of session and outlays at record highs, government shutdown worries continue to mount. Boeing issues 737 MAX order and delivery figures as more companies, including CAE, Garmin, Rocket Lab, Spire, Teledyne, Transdime, and others report. Romania orders F-35 Lightning II jets as Indonesia orders 18 more Rafale fighters from France's Dassault. And Ukraine continues its offensive as allies debate what more the country needs as Russia tries to enforce an embargo of Ukraine's Black Sea ports. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Chusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back. It wouldn't be Sunday unless you all were joining us. Thanks so very much. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks so much. Yeah, Thank you, Vago, as always. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Uh, indeed. And and you've closed down the North Carolina Bureau, uh, Richard, one after another, as you as you <laughs> the Avalafias march toward Washington. Um, you had Sherman marching to the sea. You have the Avalafias marching toward Washington. So thank you uh, very much for joining us, even while on the move. Um, Ron, uh, start us off with markets and how the group performed this week. And what are some you know, we're going to talk about interest uh, rates a little more fully uh, in a moment, but just talk to us about the broader drivers and how the group performed, given that we're actually in sort of peak summer doldrums. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are on vacation. Um, you know, we're, we're finally through the, the the bulk of earnings, right? I mean, there's um, some more companies to report, but we're kind of in the tail of earnings, at least for our sector. Um, and, you know, if you look at the, the 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 broader market for the week, the S&P was down just, just under a percent. Uh, Boeing, big bellwether, it was down about the same, just under a percent. And Northrop Grumman was down about half a percent. Lockheed Martin was up a percent. GD was up a percent. Raytheon was up maybe half a percent. So you just kind of, the market was sort of bouncing around. Um, you know, if you look at the 10-year yield, this is this is kind of interesting. The 10-year is at um, the highest it's been since, you know, kind of in recent history. I mean, it's tying kind of where it went last time people thought, um, rates were going to extend out. So, you know, that the 10-year yield is uh, over 4% at 4.15. Um, and uh, if, you, if you look at it, it's interesting, right? Um, people you know, are trying to say, you know, kind of high rates. But if you actually look at the 10-year yield from 1961 until the financial crisis, uh, the, the average yield was um, just under 7%. Uh, so if you think about 5% on the on the tenure, that's actually, or 4% on the tenure, it's actually not all that high um, in kind of a little broader, more modern historical perspective. Um, Brent crude uh, kind of held steady you know, uh, at around the 86, 87, same thing with WTI in the low 80s. Um, the SPAC index corrected a little bit, but I think you're just seeing, you know, the market kind of bouncing around, uh, making moves that it sort of kind of has to, um, a lot of people out of the office, maybe one eye on the market, that that, that kind of thing. When we send out um, emails and you get a lot of out of office replies, so uh, we're, we're we're kind of in that season, and I would imagine we will be for the next kind of week or two. 
Um, Sash, uh, from a European perspective, uh, doldrums are even more evolved uh, than they are here, as August is uh, normally a vacation month. Um, how's the group performing against broader uh, market dynamics? Look, it's very, very similar to Ron. I mean, frankly, it isn't. The interesting thing is, you know, we had a couple of big announcements this week. We're going to talk about Dasso and Rheinmetall uh, later on, and the shares traded you know, flat, to, flat to off. Um, very, very few, uh, very little volume in the stocks being traded in Europe. Um, most of the stocks, you know, the the European average was off about 0.3 of a percent. Civil was was up about 0.5. Defence was off 0.6. So, it not you know nothing to, nothing to get excited about because there weren't very many people around to get excited. Um, uh, and I don't think there's a great deal more. You know, I, I, I um, European holidays are way longer than yours are. I wouldn't expect things to get terribly interesting in terms of volumes and hence you know real pricing in European markets now until the beginning of September. Um, we're uh, going to get uh, to uh, Airbus in a minute, but Richard, um, you know what Ron uh, said about interest rates, I think is interesting. A little bit of a debate on, uh, you know, how much more um, upward pressure there's going to be on the Fed uh, to raise rates. Right? I mean, they're trying to combat inflation. We have a little bit of a spike, but most economists think it's going to be uh, something that's uh, temporary. And some discussion about whether uh, interest rates uh, go down. There's a lot of discussion about whether they're too high. But actually, historically, they're not high. They're just high recent practice by uh, central bankers, uh, at least since uh, the 20, uh, 2008 uh, financial crisis. Your, your sense on the impact of interest rates on the industry and what your kind of expectations are and where they end up going, say, over the next year or two? Well, it sure looks like inflation has come down a lot. You know, obviously, uh, the most recent numbers show a slight uptick, but it doesn't sound like people were overly concerned. You know, the wonderful term I've picked up out there in economics land is immaculate disinflation. You know, just the cold concept <laughs> that for the first time you can have disinflation without a whole lot of pain, courtesy of higher interest rates or whatever other phenomenon. And it sure looks like in our industry that might be a, a, a scenario we could hope for. But from an airline perspective, it's great. You know, you look at the numbers, you look at growth rates, you look at yields, you look at load factors, everything is fantastic. And there's a lot of, there's not a lot of what you call science in airline demand elasticity with, when it comes to economics, you know, a lot of animal spirits going on. But <laughs> right now, uh, you know, in terms of higher prices, no problem. People want to fly. Yeah, that's the story. And uh, that speaks to a market and an industry that's coping just fine with the way things are. So it's not just interest rates and whether they go up or down slightly. I think broader demand right now is just exceeding expectations and better than anyone dared hope. So again, I can relate to this whole concept of uh, immaculate disinflation. Um, Ron, uh, just, uh, just to go back to you in terms of uh, the dynamic and what uh, companies have been saying about interest rates, right? I mean, Elon Musk is somebody who's been very uh, prominent about venting his ire uh, at central bankers for interest rates being uh, too high uh, from his uh, standpoint. But what have we been hearing from the group of CEOs about the impact of the current interest rate uh, and, and what their projections and expectations are? Most of my companies don't really, not that big an impact, right? I mean, if you think about most of the companies that follow their investment grade credits, right? So they're, they're higher grade credits. And um, the, the debt of a typical defense company or even a Boeing with, you know, large commercial and defense businesses trades very tight to government debt. And, you know, they, they might have a, a modest interest rate increase, but it's not that big a deal. Where we've seen 
um, a bigger um, impact is that the difference between companies that are you know, kind of nominally what you call high yield jet debt, junk debt versus um, investment grade debt. So the spirits and the triumph groups of the world, um, their financing costs have gone up a lot. Um, so for the companies with stretched balance sheets uh, and a lot of debt, it's a much bigger deal. Now, I would say probably the, the story about interest rates now isn't specifically the, where, call it, you know, the 10 year is, but the yield curve itself is inverted. And for right. those that don't know what that means, that means, you know, shorter term debt is actually more expensive than longer term debt. And, right. and generally speaking, what's, you know, what's the market saying? Why would that be the case? Because the market's saying at some point out there, the Fed is going to cut through a lower rate. And why would they do that? Because the economy is slowing. And, and an inverted yield curve is not always an indicator of a, a slowing economy or recession, but many times it is. Uh, and, and I think that's on people's minds. Now, where it's complicated business models a bit is in the aircraft leasing community, because they're, you know, they're, they're, they have to borrow money and they borrow it on um, at different periods on the yield curve. And when the in, when the yield curve is inverted, it can sometimes make it more difficult for um, the, the lessors to uh, to make money because they have to share a spread uh, with their customers, the lessee. And, and in in the current environment, if short money is it is more expensive than long money, sometimes it can make that trickier. Um, but but outside of the outside of the lessors um, and the high yield rated companies, it's not been that big a deal. Uh, Sash, from a European perspective, in terms of where interest rates are against historical norms, uh, anything you want to add to the discussion? I don't think a single company that I have listened to the earnings call of at Q2 has actually mentioned interest rates, except in as much as it's, you know, it's sort of it's a it, it's a bit of a fact of life. But most of the companies, you know, as Ron said, they're investment grade. Um, European defense and civil aerospace companies just dare go below um, in investment grade, just in case. Uh, a, a whole load of them, particularly defense companies, have got net cash. So they've been bemoaning the lack of any return on their uh, cash until very, very recently. But it's it's not what drives the share prices of the stocks that we look at. Um, I think that the issue about uh, leasing companies is a really interesting one to watch. We've been watching it for about three years. And I mean, it, it just never never actually come through or at least it hasn't so far but that should change the dynamics of the market um at some stage uh but on the other hand underlying demand from the airlines has been so strong that you know airbus repeatedly just says we don't have a problem or have not had a problem in any given quarter financing um uh fin financing these aircraft or getting these aircraft financed one day that that message will change uh but you know so far so good um, Richard, you had uh, something uh, that you wanted to add. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, if you parse the inflation numbers, uh, a lot of it comes down to labor, you know, and that shows up, of course, in the persistently high service inflation as opposed to goods. You know, it's less about uh, less about energy, you know, less about, I don't know, construction, just heavily labor. And you look at um, the contracts that the various, uh, you know, airlines and of course manufacturers have been signing recently reflects that. You know, the magic number is between thirty-five and forty percent over the next five years or four years. American, United, Delta, Spirit, Aerosystems—they're all that, and everyone seems to be saying, "Wow, that's a lot," and not really caring a whole lot because obviously the ability to pass that on to the end user, to the end customer, isn't really in question given the strong levels of demand. 
So even at the epicenter of inflation, it doesn't look like this is a major concern. Ron, I, I want to ask you uh, really quickly, we're going to go to earnings uh, in a second. And Sash, any uh, sort of last minute earnings? I'm sorry, I didn't mention too many from a European uh, group. Uh, it's just because we end up talking about this uh, every Friday, um, right? Outlays at record uh, highs uh, at the same time, you know, and Congress is out of session, but there is still a lot of worries about whether or not we're going to have a government shutdown and more sort of fiscal dysfunction uh, as we go into the year, in part driven by the presidential race, in part uh, by uh, the GOP that, you know, is, is you know, pressure is uh, building uh, to go after President Biden over his uh, son's uh, alleged improprieties uh, and shortcomings. I mean, is anybody responding at all to, you know, worries about a government shutdown or year-long continuing resolution or any of that, or is that just not registering at all at this point? I ask no. this every week. No, I think it. I think it is a little bit. I mean, you know, there there is broad recognition that outlays are really starting to move up. Um, and that I think has been uh, uh, had a booming effect on uh, the defense names, uh, but I think that is also counterbalanced by a worry of a of a potential shutdown or or so on and so forth. And you hear, I mean, you kind of hear one story in the press, and then you kind of hear another story, and you can kind of be at back channels. You know, I, I, my sense is that um, just from some of the conversation I've had, that uh, there's going to be an attempt to try to get all the appropriations bills done by the end of the year. I don't know. I don't know if they can actually do that because you know, they you know, they'd run out of time potentially. But um, that um, that there's going to be an attempt to do that. Um, so we'll see. But I think just the uncertainty that hey, there could be a shutdown, or hey, this could extend longer. Yeah, now given that the outlays have put a, a brighter light on the defense sector. Uh, I think some more investors are thinking about that. Um, I have uh, another question I'm going to ask you because we're about to go to earnings. But first, a quick word from our sponsors, HII. Sponsors are Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage. And GE Aerospace Sponsors are Air and Naval uh, Coverage. Uh, Ron, walk us through uh, how the, um, uh, you know, we had uh, CAE, Transdyne, uh, Teledyne, um, Rocket Lab, right? Always uh, a bright spot, Garmin. Spire, a couple of other companies report. Just walk us through these sort of stragglers and sort of the last uh, group. Yeah, I think it was an interesting week from a couple of perspectives. Uh, probably Transdyne was the most interesting one because the quarter in itself was actually an outstanding quarter. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, any way you look at it, it was a really good quarter. But during management's discussion on their on their earnings call, they, you know, they mentioned, hey, you know what? There's some deceleration, at least there was in the quarter, on our aftermarket bookings, and that sent the stock down. Um, and, you know, we, we put out a note and suggested, hey, we think that's overdone. Um, you know, people have their own opinions on that. But what it does point out, though, however, <clears throat> is how sensitive the market is to uh, just, just how can I say this, how, how, how much attention there's been on commercial aerospace, how much of a very, very consensus uh, long space commercial aerospace is. And that just that kind of that hint that it might be slowing a little bit uh, and you have to bear in mind too for a company like Transline, their 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 visibility on their aftermarket is probably no more than a quarter, right? So it can kind of bounce around. Um, that 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 kind of volatility, you know, is is something to to to, to note. Um, CAE 
had a had a good quarter. Uh, their commercial operations are doing you know far better than their defense operations, but uh, no big surprise. I mean, there's pilots being trained, and that all makes sense. And then companies buying flight simulators, so you know, that that all kind of comes together. Um, Rocket Lab is you know really kind of the 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 only publicly traded commercial launch and space systems company with some heritage, meaning. I think they've done 40 successful launch now launches now, and they've got a lot of their stuff on various satellites. And uh, their quarter was you know, was 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 fine. Um, so you know, kind of broadly, I, I think that's where we are. But I think the key nugget of the week was 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 Transdime and the sensitivity on that. And then one other point I would make broadly on all the earnings we've seen, and and this is beyond just the aerospace and defense sector, the moves that companies had made. Have made on reporting have been huge this this reporting segment where we've had many many companies up 10 percent down 10 percent down 30 percent up 20 percent all over the place across the industrial world um i don't know exactly what that means i think people are trying to scratch their heads on that but the level of volatility that we've seen in this reporting um time period i i think is relatively unprecedented unless you're in some really weird environment like, you know, the global financial crisis or COVID. So that was probably one of the more remarkable things when you take, you know, the focus back a bit. What's, Uh, what's, what's, what's driving that? Because that's the kind of volatility that's always a warning sign, right? Can be, right. I mean, I think some people are saying that, I mean, honestly, I don't know. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody has a, 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 a good answer to that, or at least a, a good, you know, shared answer broadly in the market, but it's, it's notable. And, and you look across the entire industrial world and I haven't looked in other sectors and maybe even be the case in other sectors, wouldn't be surprised if it, if it was, but the volatility was huge. So, more, you know, just more, as an more. example, right? Spirit, bad quarter, down 30%. Triumph Group, right. bad quarter, down 25%. Boeing, good quarter, up 10%. Those are humongous moves. I mean, is it is it more sort of AI driven algorithmic trading or something like that that, that could be sort of overreacting as we, you know, adjust the dials to be more human like? <laughs> it's no, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think you've got you know Chat GDP or some flavor of it trading stocks at the moment. No, I mean, can there be an algorithmic angle on that? Sure, there could be, right? I mean, algorithms tend right. to exaggerate movements, but I mean, is it you know kind of true? you know, educated AI, probably not. Right. Um, but, it, but I think it's something to note because that broadly was something that was very different this quarter. I mean, uh, if I can add, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I was, if I could I add to that. To yeah, sure. No, I mean, you know, in Europe, we've seen very, very similar volatility. And I, I would say the volatility on results numbers in Europe has probably been over the last year, but it's definitely been getting bigger rather than smaller. Um, one of my colleagues, Paul Miskin, who um, has has run an equities trading desk uh, in the past, says that his analysis, which I think is very much founded in um, in deep experience, is that because fewer investment banks have got significant are prepared to take significant positions, long or short, um, against the equity, even a small surprise, plus or minus, means that there isn't a great deal in the way of shock absorber in the system for before prices actually react up or down. So I'm not, we don't think it's a bad thing, except in as much as it suggests that equity markets are much less deep than they used to be. In the, you know, back 
certainly five years ago, but definitely 10, 15 years ago, there would have been at least half a dozen investment banks who would have been prepared to buy stock at you know most prices on the day of results, and they would have have managed those positions accordingly, and they would have bought stock in or, or sold stock in very very large percentages of a share of a uh, of a uh, a day's trading, uh, because that's what their job was as market makers. Now they're much more constrained in the positions that they can take. Partly that's regulatory, partly that's trying to improve the quality of the parent company earnings, um, and as a consequence of that, you you know. Uh, a lot of investors have nowhere to go if they want to buy and sell uh, sell stock, and the shares uh, react in a much more violent way. Sash, let me uh, go to Ryan Metal. You know, the company has been uh, really on fire uh, for the last uh, couple of months. I mean, the last year, in fact, uh, with one sort of you know big wins, whether in the United States or just massive ammunition uh, orders. Uh, how did the company? Uh, how was what was the company's performance when they posted second quarter results? The results are fine. The order intake was huge. The order intake would have been um, really, really notable um, because it was the second highest quarter of orders ever for 4.1 billion of orders. Uh, it was just overshadowed by the fact that in July, the uh, German government, uh, the, the Bundestag Budget Committee, approved a, a slew of big defense orders. And they had a week where they had orders of over 7 billion euros. So it just blew Q2 out of the uh, out of the water in terms of the, the the record books. It's going to be a record quarter. They're going to get over 8 billion, or sorry, a record year. Going to get over 8 billion of orders for trucks, ammunition, um, uh, vehicle systems, um, armored vehicles, over 8 billion just for Germany this year. Another 2 to 3 billion for Ukraine, which tends to be funded by Germany, but sometimes funded by other countries. And there are other European countries uh, ordering stuff as well. So by comparison, you know, winning an $800 million um, uh, order for uh, trials for the um, XM30, formerly the OMFE program, is is sort of a rounding error for, for Ryan Natal at the stage. Shares didn't do very much. That was the interesting thing. They, um, you know, the market had expected a good quarter and um, there wasn't a, you know, a huge amount of surprise there, but it's been a, it's been a very, very good performer during the year. There were a couple of things that really, uh stood out for us though one was and we talked about this the other week um they didn't win the australian land 400 phase three order for uh infantry fighting vehicles they'd been in competition against uh hanwha of south korea i think they thought they had a really good chance uh, of that program and rheumatab was offering the 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 same lynx vehicle that they're off offering to the united states army for uh the xm30 requirement um Rheumatoid management are clearly pretty upset that they didn't win. I think they they thought they'd been told that they had a very, very good chance, but clearly not good enough. Their explanation was that the Australian government just decided that given that Rheumatoid supplies the Australian uh, Defence Forces with most of their heavy calibre uh, ammunition, with all their trucks, with all their wheeled fighting vehicles, with decoys and so forth, they just didn't want to put any more eggs in that particular basket. They wanted to spread the, uh, spread the love around and reduce the overall um uh, company risk a bit not sure whether that how you know whether that's the entire story but anyway that's the sort of justification but let you know put it in perspective 18 months ago land 400 phase three was a must win contract for rheumatol it was 
pretty existential for their armored vehicle business. Now, you know, one time you lose some uh, onto the next requirement, there's a big requirement out there for Greece, uh, again, for the Lynx fighting vehicle. And I think that's going to be the that's going to be the one to watch uh, thereafter. So uh, you know, this is the play in stock market terms on European land forces rearmament. If you want artillery uh, ammunition, you go to Rheinmetall. Um, they've just bought the Spanish company Expal. Expal's annual production or annual capacity for uh, artillery ammunition is between 300,000 and 350,000 rounds. Rheinmetall's um, capacity elsewhere is 100,000 to 150,000. But put that together, 400 to 500,000 rounds of ammunition, that is more 155 millimeter capacity than the United States has at the moment. That's how how big, how important, uh, systemically important Rheinmetall is in what's arguably the single most uh, important nature of ammunition, uh, both for European and US rearmament, but most importantly for the war in Ukraine. Uh, I'm going to uh, we're going to come back uh, to that uh, later when we talk a little bit about uh, uh, Ukraine uh, and Russia, because obviously uh, munitions production is very important, although I should point out to the audience, right, Hanwha, uh, that also scored a very important victory in Aus- Australia. Again, you know, uh, uh, it stings all the more because Rheinmetall did make that major investment in a facility uh, in uh, Australia, but that the order was much smaller than folks initially uh, thought it was, right? I mean, instead of 400-something vehicles, it was uh, it was significantly smaller. So, you know, I, I suppose there is a little bit of a consolation there, uh, ultimately. Um, R- Richard, let me take you to, um, we've got so much more to discuss, including the uh, Romania's uh, F-35 order, Indonesia's uh, order for 18 more uh, Rafales, but I want to take you to Boeing's 737 uh, max uh, orders and deliveries. Walk us through what we heard from the company uh, and how it might be changing the narrative uh, on the jet. Yeah, you know, I think first and foremost, it's of, uh, it's noteworthy that they actually announced the orders because the narrative had been from Boeing for some time is that the actual breakdown of variant orders for the Max family doesn't really mean very much because people were placing orders for whatever reason that are TBD. Or you know, like you know, likely to be upsold as say Max Ten certification um, milestones become clear by announcing them. They seem to be saying that okay, things kind of are as they are. They might change a little bit, but you get what you get. And what was interesting to me, yeah, we all knew that the Max Ten was about eight hundred planes, and it was eight hundred ten planes, otherwise known as you know one seventh of the a321 neo numbers were or just one fifth of the backlog in other words yeah they, they dave calhoun can no longer stand in front of people and say there's no problem with that mid-market that is a giant disparity also of interest max 9 was a lot smaller than i would have thought both in terms of deliveries and in orders it's clearly the max 8 that's the plane that people want 150 seats does really good at that job big question marks about whether the max simply has the potential to um, have the kind of you know uh, waterfront that the a320 family does and so you know you've got the 320 numbers a good solid 50 percent ahead in terms of uh, order book and 100 percent ahead in terms of deliveries um and well, 50% ahead in terms of delivery ambitions, 50-something versus 70-something. 
So it's it's becoming pretty clear that what we'd suspected for some time, both in terms of breadth and numbers, yeah, that's about right. And it's very interesting that uh, that Boeing revealed it all. Ron, your your take on all this, and Sash, want to get yours in a moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, I echo most of you know Richard's thoughts. I mean, it's always helpful to to see the breakout, but the the stark difference between the Max Ten and what's going on with the A three twenty one family kind of kind of kind of speaks out loud. Uh, and I think many folks have said for a long time that it's really kind of a one airplane family. That's the Max Eight, uh, and and the data that Boeing shared really really kind of supports that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Beyond that, I don't have a heck of a lot to add. And uh, does it increase pressure on the company to do something, even though the company has said that it doesn't really need to do anything? I I, I don't honestly think it does. Hmm. Um, it seems you know. It, I think it depends on. From what point of view, right? Um, you, you would think for the for the longer term for the company does it increase pressure? Yeah, but in the you know with the current strategy, I, I really don't think it does. Um, you know, if Boeing ends up with 40 percent of the narrow body market, it it seems like under the current strategy that's what they're comfortable with. Um, and and it currently, from an investor point of view, I, I don't think investors are uncomfortable with that. Um, in the wide body market, 787 is really popular and they make money with it. Um, so if the focus is shifting more to 787, a little bit less in the narrow body market, at least for the time being, um, that is what it is. Um, I would right. be astonished to see the company um, do something new anytime before the end of the decade time frame. Um, you know, uh, you know where I stand. I mean, I obviously think that ultimately for the long term of the company, they should be exploring things and doing things. But um, right now, it seems like there's other other fish to fry, uh, paying down the balance sheet, getting the current operations under control, so on and so forth. Um, and that'll, from an investor perspective, probably make the market happy. But longer term, you just have to worry about, all right, where's our product, so on and so forth. And a quick word to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marina, GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gertler. Sash, uh, just want to get uh, your sense uh, on all of this and what these numbers mean uh, given the kind of the progress that we've seen Airbus make in the marketplace. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, just to go back to the point that Richard made about how companies are reluctant to say what what model, what, what you know, what sub-variant of the aircraft are because they take orders that are TBD. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, the customer may not have gone firm on whether they want a Max 8, Max 9, Max 10. Um, and I would say, yeah, that's all very well. But the fact is the customer will um at least put a placeholder in for which model they want and you can always change the number later it's not as if this goes into the backlog and is then um you know cast in concrete or anything and one of the interesting things about analyzing airbus's backlog has been looking at the degree to which the proportion of a321s has gone up faster than the order intake of a321s i.e customers have been ordering a320s and then and then saying do you know what we want the bigger aircraft and that's fine that that's how uh, the industry works. Um, and so I, you know, I, I could never understand this sort of coyness by Boeing about what uh, what model they uh, they would record as being the um, 
you know, the, the, the Max family breakdown. Um, yeah. So, you know, the middle of the market, uh, 180, 200 seats and 5,000 plus uh, nautical miles. I mean, belong, it's going to belong to the A321 um, based on particularly based on, on you know, Ron's assessment, going to belong to Airbus for, for, for the rest of the decade. And that should be a very, very profitable process for Airbus. Uh, and, you know, listeners, it's worth recalling that Airbus has spent the last two, two and a half years, I mean, apart from recovering from COVID, clearly, making sure that every single final assembly line they've got is um, capable of building an A321. Before the pandemic, they had A321 final assembly lines, they had A320 final assembly lines, and a you know, handful that could do, could do both. But now they said they're all going to be 321 capable. So if customers wanted to keep on converting to A321s, Airbus can rack up that proportion. And so a higher proportion of that 75 aircraft a month, which is their production target for 2026, will be 321s. Um, and you know, I think it's entirely possible they'll end up delivering you know, more than two thirds of all their output as the bigger aircraft. Wow. And bigger, longer stretch aircraft, that's where you make money in this industry. So um, I think Airbus will be delighted with, with what they've seen from the Boeing um, breakdown. And I think they, you know, if they think that Boeing doesn't want to build a new aircraft, that suits Airbus just fine. That's an excellent way of putting it. Yes, I think it does uh, suit uh, Airbus uh, just fine. Uh, speaking of Europe, um, Richard, uh, F-35 continues uh, its march, uh, securing an order in uh, Romania, and uh, Dassault continues to be on fire, uh, landing uh, another 18 airplanes uh, with Indonesia. Walk us through what this means in the global fighter ecosystem. Yeah, the global fighter ecosystem, well, the market is white hot. Industry, however, does not appear to be as capable of expanding as the market. You know, the market is going from, you know, 15 billion to, well, probably around 35, 40 billion a year, in theory, if people can build it. Now, the Romanian orders, that's just unachievable icing on the cake. I mean, you know, you look at starting in 2027, 20, 2028, good luck with that. I mean, if they get to 156, which they have yet to demonstrate, and there are major issues. Um, well, uh, <laughs> that would be good, but you know, that's not enough. That's not enough to add the Romanian orders on top of all of the other ones. So how did they get there? Adding the Rheinmetall fuselage section to replace the Turks only added by their own account about 10 planes a year. Um, I don't know how they, how they do this. Similarly, you know, you look at, uh, at uh, so the order book is fantastic. And of course, if the Indian Navy comes through for even more, that's even better. But as we noted in one of our previous podcasts, the first half of the year, they delivered a rather underwhelming four aircraft. Right. You know, how do you start shipping away at the 80 or 100 or 120, however many are de facto on backlog. How do we do this? Uh, you know, to me, it's the biggest unanswered question. People are coping with the artillery shell crisis. They've got a roadmap to somehow expanding missile production. It's going to take time. But combat aircraft, I can't help but worry that somehow the entire industry hasn't to the point where there are major questions about our ability to execute on all of these orders, no matter what country you're in. Uh, so it's great to right. see news of countries that had never ordered planes in this class before. And of course, Indonesia hadn't even ordered a new combat aircraft since they until they ordered, you know, 
Korean TA-50s back a few years ago. Before that, it had always been used A-4s or used F-16s. And Romania, of course, you know, big MiG-21 user. So it's great to see them join the club, but we just don't know how we're going to expand industry to uh, deliver. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating, right? But nothing more uh, than uh, uncertainty and fear, really, to to drive government decision-making on this. Ron, uh, do you want to take a quick uh, bite at this as well? And, and Sash, want to go to you, and then we'll uh, wrap it up talking a little bit about uh, Ukraine. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, just a quick point I'd add to what Richard said. Um, it also takes a little pressure off the U.S. government from taking all their F-35s. Right. So if the U.S. government wants to do, you know, spend money on other things such as FAXX or NGAD or you name the program, um, they can maybe free up some U.S. slots for international sales and uh, the Air Force can or whoever can, um, you know, divvy the money up however they want. So um, maybe one of the solutions to you know the demand problem internationally, um, you know, meeting that demand is maybe the U.S. takes fewer and, and looks at some other things. Sash? I think Rachel's point about you know Dasso and and more you know more broadly about capacity in the industry. I mean, I suppose one I'd, I'd rationalise this in a couple of ways. One is that uh, yeah, countries want fighter aircraft, but it's not that important. If if you are a European nation at the moment, your land forces are more important because that's what you've been giving to Ukraine. You've been giving them ammunition. You've been giving them armoured vehicles. You've been giving guns, and you desperately want to restock. Whereas actually, most European nations have got very good modern. Uh, fighter fleets. Yeah, you know, the odd MiG-21 still in, in uh, Romania. But, you know, European nations have got F-35s on order. There's a lot of um, uh, Eurofighters, Rafale in the case of um, uh, France, Grippens, F-16s and so forth. So it's not the most important area. And hence, most European countries and indeed global countries are prepared to wait uh, or at least, you know, uh, realise they have sure a bit of, of patience. And it, it's not hurting in the way that uh, artillery ammunition is because that is the area that you know could really come and uh, come back and bite them uh, a couple of years down the line. The issue specifically for Dasso as a private company is they don't want to, to ramp up production to let's say 60, 80 aircraft a year, uh, eat all of their backlog in this period of probably four or five years, and then have nothing in the early 2030s while they're waiting for SCAF. Uh, or whatever next generation aircraft come along. So they're being very, very cautious unless customers pay them a lot of money to accelerate uh, production. And I suspect that we will see Dasso's production peak at about three and a half, maybe four aircraft a month, but no more than that, because they're playing a really long game. They want the company to be stable uh, and profitable all through the, the 2030s and in, into the 2040s. This isn't a view that you get from many Anglo-American managements, but you know, Dasso is essentially a family firm and uh, good for them. Richard, can I go to you uh, for for just uh, a second? Uh, because it looks like the U.S. government is clearing F-16s uh, for uh, Turkey, uh, as well as upgrade kits. Walk, walk us through what this means, right? Because uh, Erdogan has changed his tune. Nobody fully trusts him. But part of the hostage exchange here was, you know, Sweden gets in, you get F-16s, uh, they're going to get F-16s. What does that mean for the F-16 line before uh, we end it uh, by going to Sash and asking him about Ukraine? Yeah, you know, I think first and foremost, the U.S. always had more power um, in these negotiations than anyone realized. And I, I think the, uh, the Biden administration actually played it pretty well. I'm not so sure the Turks had much choice. They couldn't get F-35s, uh, obviously, to state obvious, uh, an obvious fact, Russian planes weren't an option. 
um, European planes, they would have to industrialize for a relatively interim batch because if you build it, if you build a factory in country for Rafales or Eurofighters or Gripens, you have to admit, oh dear, that TX, or I should say, uh, you know, the, the Ka'an is nowhere near ready for production, which would be a real blow to Erdogan's vain, glorious aspirations for aerospace and defense autarky. In other words, the only thing they could do was build F-16s on the production line they have in country and on the engine line they have in country. That was the only way out from a face-saving perspective for Erdogan. And now, thankfully, there was this grand deal to be made with Sweden and whatever else. It looks like it's going ahead. I think it's it's win-win for everybody. And there was a certain inevitability at it, uh, about it. Um, so happy days, I think. Uh, but, I mean, next year they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the F-16. Uh, and it's astonishing that it's that has it. How many how many order how many uh, planes are in the order book now? Yeah, it's uh, it's gosh, it's uh, two hundred and something, three hundred around there. Um, right. With with Turkey, it's it's somewhere in that zone. Plus, an awful lot of upgrade plans that include an AESA radar. Uh, right. And I I frankly think there's potential for you know more than that. Um, it is pretty remarkable, you know, more a legend than a plane, as they say. And it's also, you know, with the AESA radar and the price tag, it's arguably still the, the best value uh, in the combat aircraft market, perhaps ever. Uh, it, it, uh, it, is, it is a value play. As Mickey Blackwell used to tell us, what, $26 billion, and I'll throw in a tank of gas, which I always thought right. was very funny. Yeah, you, get, you get your jet with a tank of gas and a little, little, uh, little, little tree for cockpit freshener. Um, uh, Sash, uh, bring us uh, home. Ukraine's uh, offensive uh, is uh, continuing. Nations looking on how best uh, to uh, support them. Um, I I think European uh, nations should be investing uh, in better uh, air power and more air launched munitions. But hey, that's just me uh, because you end up at a stalemate when you don't have uh, large scale air supremacy. But moving on from that, well, you know the Russians also have uh, pulled over a Palau uh, registered uh, ship. Uh, um, that was uh, going toward a Ukrainian uh, port, if I recall, it's the Sukuru Okan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, actually shooting at the ship to get it to pull over. And the Russians don't do anything uh, unless it's a demonstration of muscularity, right? And then sort of force the hand of the international community after they walked away from the grain deal. I think we should be using uh, territorial waters and the three-mile limit and getting Ukrainian ships through that on on down uh, and uh, into the Mediterranean. Uh, but hey, uh, that's just uh, me and create a naval task force and do it in the sovereign waters of the nations uh, that are uh, bordering Ukraine. What does this step mean? Give us a a war update, but also what this step means, uh, do you think, for the future? Yeah, um, I think your point about create a naval task force and uh, demonstrate that international waters are just that is a is a really good one. And provide context of course that is exactly what the west did with regard to tankers in the um uh, arabian gulf when there was the you know what was widely referred to as the tanker war between uh, iraq and iran and the two countries were uh, shooting at e- at not just each other's tankers but anybody's tankers that moved to to try to choke the other side off um uh, from from their sources of of export dollars, so we've shown that this is a principle we're prepared to do. I think the issue is this constant fear that the U.S. and 
uh, Europe has about escalation and how far can we push Russia before the Russians retaliate in a way that is not just stupid, but really, really unpleasant as well. Um, the odds are that this is what we will do, but we'll do it much later than people would want and probably in a sli slightly more um, you know, mealy-mouthed way than, than people would want. I didn't detect, certainly in Europe, that there's the appetite for that yet. But, um, you know, the Russians are clearly trying upping the ante and seeing whether they will get a response uh, out of the West, as indeed they're doing uh, in terms of their counterattack in the north of Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are also trying to sort of force a degree of escalation by their indirect attacks uh, over the Russian border and in the vicinity of Moscow. Now, they have to be very careful because one of the uh, conditions of the supply of weapons from the West is that you don't directly strike Russia because otherwise that makes us implicit in this or actually explicit in this. Um, uh, but so the Ukrainians are having to do this generally with um, uh, indigenous, indigenously produced systems. Um, but I think, you know, the constant process of escalation on both sides and then um, the Russians, I think, do do it rather, rather more muscularly and rather more crudely um, is one of the most noticeable aspects. And what this points to, of course, is I think that the land uh, offensives on both sides because the Russians are trying to counterattack north of Bakhmut, but the land offenses are pretty much stalemated. Uh, the amounts of ground being gained or lost in a given couple of days or a given week is a few hundreds of yards typically. You know, half a mile is pretty good for a counterattack here. The last time we saw something like this, I'm afraid, was the First World War, and it's profoundly depressing, but it just shows how powerful a well-prepared defense is against a uh, against any form of offense. Um, and I think the Ukrainians are therefore uh, trying to switch tactics quite wisely, not not just to husband their their resources, but also to impose much greater attrition on uh, Russian indirect fire, artillery, rockets, and all, all of the logistics systems. But I think the great you know the ground offenses offensives are uh, are close to stalling, and hence we're seeing, expansion and uh uh you know changes in the nature of war um outside it and the west will get more and more dragged in i'm sure of that um i uh again uh you know if we were supplying the ukrainians with the air power they need i think it could make a dramatic uh difference you end up in a war like this because you're not using uh those techniques and we didn't make these decisions when we should have uh almost uh you know a year and a half ago and i yeah, think i, I, I agree with that bearing fruit yeah. now yeah, it would yeah. be bearing fruit now, unfortunately. Um, and and the casualties, uh, sadly, uh, are being uh, taken by the Ukrainians uh, for, for these decisions. Let me ask one more uh, last question. In terms of how much more, right? I mean, at what point, Sash, does the weather in that neck of Europe, right? We're, we're all, it's about a month left, isn't there, roughly, before the weather starts to turn? Uh, end of September. And then October, November, that's the mud. Uh, the mud uh, in the Ukraine has always been what has uh, stopped uh, almost any movement uh, off roads. Uh, and then, uh, you uh, you know, militarily, you hope that you get a hard winter, everything freezes. And there's, a, there's quite often, historically, been a very, very active winter campaigning season. Um, I don't think anybody would want that. It's unbelievable. It can be historically unbelievably cold. Last winter was not. Um, uh, and that sort of rather slowed things down as well. But yeah, I would say that you know, the Ukrainians have probably got five, six weeks. 
Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much as always uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a terrific uh, weekend and a terrific week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Always great being here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Vago. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as always, Vago. Great to be part of the Washington Bureau again after many weeks on the road. Uh, it, yes, uh, in fact, and Washington is glad uh, to welcome you all uh, back. Uh, thanks very much uh, for listening, and a very special thanks uh, to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program uh, possible every day. Tune in tomorrow uh, for our Look Ahead uh, program uh, with Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses with the latest uh, on uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and Ukraine's uh, response, as well as Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the weekend. And that program uh, is sponsored by HII. Thanks very much again for joining us and hope everybody has a great day.